Russian Orthodox priest has already become one of the first people charged under Russia's new law, which criminalizes criticism of the war or even calling what's happening a war. Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Last week, we spoke about Russia's brutal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine with Bernard-Henri Lévy, who debunked Russian claims that it's denazifying Ukraine. He also shared his impressions about the significant progress Ukraine has made towards building a tolerant and multi-confessional society. Today, we're joined by USERF senior policy analyst Jason Morton, who covers Russia for the commission. Now he's gonna go deeper on how the Russian government has long used religious freedom violations in its efforts to dismantle civil society at home and facilitate its ruthless occupation of Crimea and the Donbass region of Eastern Ukraine. Jason, as always, welcome back to USERF Spotlight. Thank you, Dwight. Now, as I said last week, uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy shared his experiences from traveling to Ukraine during the pandemic, uh, looking at the religious landscape in the country and warned of uh, the threats posed by any successful Russian occupation. Can you tell us more, though, about the uh, overarching religious landscape in Russia and how is it different uh, than Ukraine? The short answer is that Russia is designated as a country of particular concern, or CPC, by the U.S. Department of State, and Ukraine is not. So we'll get into some of the reasons for that. Uh, for years, USERF has been monitoring Russia's use of religion as a means to expand the authoritarian control of Putin's government. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the, the tools that he relies on frequently, uh, the repression of religion. Russian religious policy claims to protect quote-unquote traditional values and faiths from the destructive influence of so-called religious extremists or foreign ideologies. Uh, to some extent, this can be understood in terms of Russia's historical legacy. So even before the days of the Soviet Union, the Russian state always took priority over the individual. And officially sanctioned nationalism was all about support for the autocratic state and its religious orthodoxy. And this didn't mean just Russian, you know, Christian orthodoxy, but all states supported or quote unquote traditional religions, including Islam, uh, Buddhism, Judaism, and others. The Soviet Union uh, never outlawed religion. Contrary to, to popular conceptions, it, it heavily regulated it. The communists were actually convinced that, that religion and all old beliefs were rooted in, in human suffering and would just fade away uh, as, as soon as communism removed the underlying need for them. And so long as religion remained a social reality, uh, the Soviet Union needed to control it. That's the way they felt. And so their 1929 law on religious associations 
uh, at the time of Stalin, you know, set the pattern for religious regulation, you know, for the rest of Soviet history and unfortunately beyond. Uh, the law required all religious groups to register with the state. It made all religious activity outside the confines of a recognized church or building illegal and banned the religious instruction of minors or the distribution of religious literature. During World War II, Stalin rehabilitated the Russian Orthodox Church's standing in Soviet society as a way of harnessing the church's uh, you know, continued popularity for the state. So the Russian Orthodox Church was allowed to function, but the state approved and appointed most of its leaders. Uh, it really became a quasi-state religion with a privileged status in the Soviet Union. Uh, and this status was also shared by other traditional religions like Islam in the regions of the Soviet Union where they dominated. Religious regulation, unfortunately, looks very similar to this in contemporary Russia. Uh, although there was a brief period of religious freedom after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, in the mid-90s, the Russian Orthodox Church began spearheading a campaign to reassert the primacy of the so-called traditional religions and to undermine all of those confessions or interpretations of, of religions like Christianity and Islam uh, that didn't have a long presence in the country and the associated strong links to the state. Uh, so in 1997, a new law effectively ended the state's permissive treatment of religious minorities and introduced regulations that were really based on previous Soviet policy, that 1929 law that I referred to earlier. In his 2000 Russian national security concepts so at the very beginning of his uh, tenure in office, Putin claimed that protection of traditional religions was a matter of national security for Russia and argued for the formation of government policies in the field of spiritual and moral education of the population. So just to reiterate this, this need to in reinforce certain interpretations of religion is viewed as a matter of national security in Russia. So in short, uh, these quote unquote traditional religions in Russia are essentially an arm of the state. They're not currently as subservient as they were in Soviet times. And even now, some Russian Orthodox priests and Muslim leaders have joined thousands of other Russian citizens speaking out against the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or at the very least, they've refrained from endorsing it. Uh, this is probably going to change very rapidly, though, unfortunately. Um, a Russian Orthodox priest has already become one of the first people charged under Russia's new law, which criminalizes criticism of the war or even calling what's happening a war. Uh, he recently preached a sermon about uh, the commandment not to kill. And for that, he could face 15 years in prison, especially if he does it again. Um, at least 250 Russian Orthodox clergy have signed an open letter calling on their fellow priests to actively work for, priests, for peace. Uh, it's, it's really unclear at this point how the Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill or President Putin will respond to this. Uh, we can look to neighboring Belarus, where the Belarusian Orthodox Church is subservient to the Moscow Patriarchate. And there we've already seen a purge of priests who dared to speak out in support of popular protests against authoritarian president Lukashenko in August, 2020. Uh, unfortunately, high profile Russian religious leadership like Patriarch Kirill, as well as the Chechen Grand Mufti Salak Majiev, 
uh, had, they've already provided spiritual justification for the war, uh, with Kirill recently claiming that this war is against, uh, that the West is basically making war against countries that don't allow gay parades, gay pride parades, and Majiev claiming that the war is actually a, a justified jihad against the enemies of religion. Russian state media is currently full of sensational programming about the spread of Satanism from the West. So uh, this spiritual narrative is, is unfortunately very important right now. Yeah, thanks for that uh, context to give a much better understanding of what, what uh, Russia looks like uh, today. One of the religious groups uh, that Yusuf has advocated for in Russia have been the Jehovah's Witnesses who have been the target of the Russian government for several years now. Can you share with our audience uh, conditions faced by this faith community and explain Russia's uh, justification for targeting them in particular? Sure. So on April 20th, 2017, the Jehovah's Witnesses were banned in Russia uh, based on the accusation that the church was a quote-unquote extremist organization. And this requires some explaining. So in addition to the law that I just explained, the 1997 law, there have been an other series of laws that have built on that. Uh, starting in 2002, Russia adopted a law on combating extremist activity. And this law contains no clear definition of extremism, uh, but allows for the prosecution of things like incitement of, of religious hatred or uh, propaganda of exclusiveness, basically saying that, uh, you know, any religion which claims that it is the only true religion, you know, they could be prosecuted under that as an extremist organization. Uh, a 2012 study by the Savas Information Center uh, found, actually found that religious organizations constituted the majority of those accused under this extremism law. To that initial extremism law in July 2016, the Russian government added another package of amendments that significantly enhanced the scope and penalties of the previous religion and anti-extremism laws and gave the government broad authority to monitor private electronic communications to root out extremists and missionaries. So they can look on someone's phone and see if they invited a friend to church and that could be characterized as illegal missionary activity, for instance. So since 2017, this array of religious and extremist legislation has been used in a brutal attempt to destroy the Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia. And there are many reasons for this, but probably the most important one is that the Jehovah's Witnesses are uncompromising in their stance against participation in typical rituals of state. So they don't serve in the military, they don't salute flags, they don't swear oaths of allegiance. And this makes them a target for authoritarian governments who always require some kind of baseline participation in state rituals and state symbolism. Uh, and what this does, you know, it effectively makes persecution of the Jehovah's Witnesses worldwide a kind of canary in the coal mine for authoritarian creep. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we've been witnessing in Russia. Uh, in the Russian context, the Jehovah's Witnesses are a particularly useful target because they were persecuted in the Soviet Union for the same reason, and none of the propaganda used against them was ever officially repudiated by post-Soviet Russia. So there's already this kind of foundation of propaganda that the state can draw on, and when combined with the fact that the Jehovah's Witnesses began in the United States, and this was also a motive for their repression in Soviet times, it's pretty obvious why an authoritarian state like modern Russia has put such effort into persecuting them. 
One other development we witnessed during Russia's invasion is the participation of uh, Muslim ethnic Chechens who wear long beards and have been photographed engaging in collective prayer before going into battle. What can you tell us about Chechnya's place in modern Russia and why is Russia using uh, the Chechen soldiers in this way? Russia is using the Chechens in a very imperial way, uh, you know, almost identical to the way that the Russian Empire liked to use ethnic minorities like Circassians and Cossacks as elite troops, but also uh, to, you know, a group that would frighten the enemy and also demonstrate the Russian Empire's power to completely subordinate ethnicities that had once fought against the empire. So this is very true of the Chechens. The Chechens have fought numerous brutal wars against Russia ever since Russia invaded their land in the late 19th or late 18th century. Uh, the entire nation was deported to Kazakhstan and Siberia by Stalin. And most recently, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they fought two wars, which were initially motivated by nationalist aspirations and desire for independence, but were later heavily influenced by Islamist militants from abroad who offered needed material and, and moral support. Uh, Putin came to power on promises to fix this situation in Chechnya, and he did this by combining extreme brutality uh, with outreach to powerful cliques in, in Chechnya. By 2003, the Russian army had completely reduced the capital city of Grozny into what the UN at the time called the most devastated city on earth. You know, I actually was there in 2004 and can attest to that there wasn't a single building that was not uh, you know, bearing the signs of, of the damage and many of them were destroyed. Uh, Putin also reached out to a man named Ahmed Kadyrov, who was the spiritual leader of the Chechen resistance. Uh, like most Chechens, Kadyrov was a Sufi, and he had supposed family ties to a prominent Chechen Sufi leader from the 19th century. And even though he was the spiritual leader of Chechnya, he was increasingly alarmed by the rising influence of non-Sufi Islam in Chechnya, uh, including violent jihadis. And he was probably influenced by the power and wealth that were offered to him by Putin. Uh, Kadyrov brought the Russians more than just religious and ideological legitimacy. He also contributed a loyal network of tribal alliances and seasoned fighters who are known as the Kadyrovsi. Somewhat unsurprisingly, his 2003 election was marred by allegations of voter intimidation and the withdrawal or removal of alternative candidates. His official tenure in office was cut short on May 9th, 2004, when he was killed by a bomb uh, while attending a parade in celebration of the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany. Since 2007, Chechnya has been ruled by his son, whose name is Ramzan Kadyrov, and he's turned the republic into a kind of theocracy, which is based on his very peculiar interpretation of Islam, uh, which includes the worship of his father and his family. So huge mosques across the Chechen Republic are dedicated to specific members of the Kadyrov family. Kadyrov really promotes a form of religion that's synonymous with his rule uh, and legitimizes his personal control over every aspect of social and political life and private life in, in, in Chechnya. Contrary to state rhetoric, uh, which often contrasts you know, the supposedly moderate Chechen Islam with violent jihadism, Kadyrov's religion is not pacifist. Uh, it's a brutal totalitarian ideology that advocates violence against all nonconformity and idolizes the military prowess of the Kadyrovsi. According to the Russian LGBT network, 
Law enforcement regularly threatens the families of LGBTI individuals, including those individuals themselves, uh, encouraging their families to carry out honor killings of them. Many have been tortured and killed, and not just LGBTI people, but also Muslims who refuse to subordinate their religious beliefs to Kadyrov, political dissidents, women who complain about their husbands beating them, and even old women accused of witchcraft. So Putin basically has this army within an army comprised of loyal Muslim militants who've been brutalizing their own people for two decades and are you know, more than happy to switch their focus to Ukrainians now. I, I do suspect that part of this strategy is to foment the kind of neo-Nazism that Putin claims to be fighting in Ukraine by terrifying white, you know, right-wing groups in Europe with the prospect of invading Chechens and you know, potentially motivating them to come to Ukraine to fight. Uh, fortunately, this is complicated by the fact that many Chechens who fled Europe you know, and fled Kadyrov, as well as other Muslim groups like the Crimean Tatars, are already fighting on behalf of Ukraine. Uh, I want to dig in a little bit here to Putin's narrative about denazification again, since it can be kind of confusing. So this narrative has powerful resonance in Russian society and guarantees a certain level of knee-jerk support. The Soviet Union lost about 20 million citizens fighting the Nazis in World War II. And this means that nearly every family in Russia has a direct personal connection to that conflict and can be easily influenced to support a war if they believe that it's all about fighting Nazis. Uh, the narrative is deeply ingrained in the Russian psyche. And even during the war, Stalin used propaganda about Nazi collaboration to justify forcibly deporting entire ethnic populations like the Crimean Tatars and the Chechens. In 1956 and 1968, the Soviet Union used a similar excuse to justify invading Hungary and Czechoslovakia, respectively, to crush democratic reforms there. And since 2014, the Russian government has applied the same rhetoric to democratic reforms in Ukraine, describing it as a neo-Nazi coup. And this doesn't mean that there isn't racism in Ukraine. Uh, certain fringe strains of Ukrainian nationalism do share neo-Nazi sympathies, just like many other extremist groups in, in other parts of the world. This doesn't mean that Ukraine is a neo-Nazi state or even a place where those kinds of sympathies are accepted in society or particularly popular. You know, unfortunately, racism is a problem everywhere. Uh, and this includes Russia. It's not uncommon you know, when looking for an apartment in Moscow, you know, just constantly seeing uh, the specification that, that owners will only rent to Slavs, for instance. Uh, Chechens and other groups from the North Caucasus face extensive racism in major Russian cities, both from the populace and law enforcement who regularly profile and harass them. So depicting Ukraine as a neo-Nazi state and Russia as somehow diverse and tolerant is really just a ploy. And as this conflict plays out, Putin is going to continue to amplify divisions over things like race, language, and religion to justify the indefensible. And we really need to be careful not to fall for it. Indeed. And thanks for uh, going into more detail on that narrative, you know, explaining, as, as we heard last week from Bernard-Henri Lévy, there is history there and, and uh, resonance, as you said. Uh, people also shouldn't forget that Russia has occupied has already occupied parts of Ukraine for eight years now. As you've referred many times to 2014, they've wreaked havoc uh, on religious communities in Russia. 
what kinds of religious freedom violations have we seen in places like Crimea or the Donbass uh, region since uh, Russia occupied them in 2014? So when Russia invaded Ukraine, it brought along with it its, its restrictive religious regulation framework that I've discussed before, uh, including this connection between you know, spiritual and national security. The occupation regime in Ukraine, so speaking specifically about in Crimea and the Eastern, Eastern separatist republics, frequently use religious regulations to terrorize the general population, as well as to target activists in the Crimean Tatar community. Uh, the majority of whom are Muslim and are charged with extremism and terrorism uh, for their essentially secular political opposition to the Russian presence. Uh, more than 50 Crimean Tatars at this point have been imprisoned, uh, some for up to 20 years, on these trumped up extremism and terrorism charges. Most of them, as I said, were, were, were vocal and active critics of the occupation. Frequent unannounced raids, confiscation of private property, arbitrary detention, and interrogation. These are all features of Russia's approach to religion in general and uh, especially in the occupied territories. Since the Russian invasion of Crimea, the larger Muslim community has faced persistent harassment. Residents report electricity to mosques being shut off right before Ramadan. Uh, their communities are required to pay bribes to local authorities just to get the electricity turned on uh, in time for the holidays. Muslims are not allowed to celebrate holidays like Ramadan without official permits, uh, which are often denied or withheld without uh, the paying of a bribe. Occupation authorities have installed video cameras in mosques throughout the region, and many communities report constant surveillance and frequent raids. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which separated from Moscow, the Moscow Patriarchate in 2019, is also persistently targeted for its perceived ties to Ukrainian nationalism. On June 28, 2019, for example, occupation authorities seized and closed the Cathedral of Vladimir and Olga in Simferopol, which was the main cathedral and headquarters of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Crimea. On November 16, 2018, a man named Sergei Filatov became the first resident of Crimea to face prosecution for being a Jehovah's Witness. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, just to, you know, uh, reinforce or, or reiterate that they're legal in Ukraine, but illegal in Russia. As of November 2021, there were five Jehovah's Witnesses imprisoned in Russia, Russian-occupied Crimea, with seven more under house arrest and two forbidden from traveling outside of their immediate vicinities. Uh, in the so-called Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Russian-backed separatists have passed a new religion law that required all previously registered communities to re-register in order to be able to practice. And at this point, only Russian Orthodox churches under the jurisdiction of the Moscow Patriarchate have been allowed to register. Although some communities do continue to meet without registering, they do so clearly at their own risk. And even before the law was passed, authorities would frequently raid religious communities, confiscate literature, uh, and harass congregants. And this continues at present. Uh, they've even banned things like a translation of the Gospel of John, for instance. 
Um, and the situation is similar in the other separatist republic known as the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR. In 2018, the Jehovah's Witnesses were banned as an extremist organization, mirroring the policy in Russia. Rebel authorities have also seized numerous places of worship from a variety of religious communities, including two Orthodox Church of Ukraine cathedrals and buildings belonging to Baptist Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Seventh-day Adventists and Muslims. Well, Jason, what you've painted here is quite a uh, bleak depiction uh, of religious freedom in Crimea and the, the Donbass region, for sure, uh, to say the least. Um, you know, as Russia continues to attack and advance in Ukraine, uh, in your view, uh, without, you know, too much wild speculation, I would say, because there's a lot of that going on, what, what will this mean for the rest of the country uh, should Russia continue to uh, advance? Well, if, if we want to know what the Ukrainian religious landscape would look like under a Russian occupation, we really only need to look at the already occupied territories and the situation inside of Russia. So the things have been describing. Uh, the authorities are going to use the pretext of combating extremism and terrorism to target religions that it perceives to be non-traditional. And this is potentially any community without strong links to the state or really any individual who expresses views that the state doesn't like. And this includes religious leaders who preach sermons about the commandment not to kill, uh, Muslims who criticize the occupation, and virtually anyone that the state finds inconvenient. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will certainly be targeted, as well as Crimean Tatar Muslim refugees, many Protestant groups, Greek Catholics, uh, and especially members of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. So this last group is of particular concern. On January 6, 2019, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine was granted independence, or it's known as autocephaly, uh, from the Moscow Patriarchate by the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople. And this was in response of, the, of Russia's use of the church to under, undermine Ukrainian sovereignty and promote Russian interests. Since that time, thousands of former Moscow Patriarchate parishes have switched their allegiance to the independent Kiev Park. Kiev Park Patriarchate, excuse me. Uh, this not only outraged Russian nationalist sentiment, it really undermined Moscow's claims that Ukraine and Russia comprise a unified historical, ethnic, and religious space. Religion is, is a big part of Moscow's obsession with Ukraine. Kiev is referred to in Russian nationalist ideology as the mother of Russian cities, considered to be the birthplace of the Russian state. Uh, the so-called baptism of Rus, when Eastern Slavs were supposedly converted en masse to Orthodox Christianity, that occurred in Ukraine. And the oldest churches in Eastern Slavic Orthodox Christianity are in Kyiv and in Ukraine. And many of these still remain under the control of the Moscow Patriarchate. But Moscow is going to seek to return those parishes that switched sides and probably will seek to punish the clergy uh, in, in charge of them. You know, the restoration of so-called Holy Rus, which is an ahistorical nationalist utopia, which includes Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. This is almost certainly one of Russia's symbolic goals for the region. But it could already be backfiring. 
So Ukrainian churches who remained under the Moscow Patriarchate, they are also speaking out against the war, including uh, the main leader of that church in Ukraine. And as I said before, many Russian Orthodox priests in Russia are also speaking out. Uh, the invasion could easily lead to more Ukrainian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate parishes switching their allegiance to the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, especially if the war drags out. And only time will really tell. Well, we'll have to leave it uh, right here. Uh, hopefully we won't have to keep coming back to this and that this won't be something of the future, but uh, we'll, we'll keep it updated. I want to thank uh, Jason Morton uh, for joining us uh, today and sharing his deep insights and expertise on Russia and, and what this invasion of Ukraine could portend uh, down the line and, and what's already going on in Crimea and the Donbass region occupied Ukraine. You can find USERF's reporting on Russia as well as our latest uh, policy recommendations on our website. As always, thanks for tuning in today and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.